The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi, I'm Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. High prices have strained power systems across Europe this year, shifting power flows between countries and triggering extraordinary congestion management costs. Greater interconnection between power markets and the expansion of distributed energy systems are touted as two of the key solutions to these problems. But questions remain around technology, implementation, timelines, and of course, policy. We recently had the opportunity to sit down with Chris Peters, CEO of Elia Group, to discuss how we might rethink the European electricity grid as the energy system decarbonizes. He's particularly well-positioned to discuss interconnectors. He's been the Elia Group CEO since 2015, which through its subsidiaries in Belgium and Germany operates over 1,900 kilometers of high-voltage connections and supplies 30 million users with electricity. And speaking with Chris today about interconnectors and demand-side flexibility is Sanjit Sangara. And at BNEF, he heads our grids and utilities work. So today, he'll be your host. Now, as a quick reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we have a complete disclaimer that can be found at the end of the show. But now let's hear from Sanjeet speaking with Chris about the future of the European energy system. Hi, Chris. It's nice to have you in the office. I wanted to have a bit of a conversation about the different forms of flexibility. We have large flexibility with interconnectors, and we can have distributed or smaller flexibility with the use of demand-side resources. So here in Europe, we've had a year where the power system has come under strain. We've seen shifting power flows, extraordinary congestion management costs. And we've known for some time that flexibility is part of the solution. So this is kind of what I want to explore. And I want to start by talking about the bigger form of flexibility, which is interconnector development. And the question I have for you is interconnection still important to the net zero project. And I say that because like we've seen a success with energization of Ukraine to the European continental grid this year. But we've also seen some countries suggest that interconnection flows are not dependable, right? That they might not move as much energy on them. So where do you place interconnection on the net zero project? Well, Sanjeet, for us, interconnectors remain a key piece of the solution. And that has to do with a couple of things. First of all, we see quite an important evolution of interconnectors towards hybridization. So we use them not only to interconnect to different market parts and to have flows between those market parts and in that way create welfare. We also see them as a mean to integrate offshore renewable energy into the grid. And so that means that they become much more effective than they were before. So they become actually a very let's say, valuable piece, but also a cost-effective piece of the energy transition. If you then look at your question around flexibility, interconnectors play a major role in a system that is having large volumes of renewables because it 
it helps with matching the correlated markets to each other. So, for instance, like the northern part of the North Sea, in our case, is very much decorrelated from the south part of the North Sea. Connecting those two together, of course, creates a much more stable flow of energy. And that is one that we did a study last year on how could a system work that is fully based on renewables just for the technical interest. And there you see that renewables play specifically a role in the what we call medium-term cycle. Yeah. So the other types of flexibility you just mentioned are in the short cycle, let's say day two days yeah, kind of cycle. Interconnectors play a very important role in the flexibility that we have that is going over a cycle that is between three and 15 days, let's say. And the reason why that is, is that of course you can bring large volumes of green energy from one place where it is produced to another place. And that is creating, of course, a very, let's say, good dimension of flexibility in that kind of horizon. And it's relatively cheap and it's relatively, let's say, efficient in the sense that energy losses on an interconnector are quite limited compared to any other form of flexibility that you can see in the system. Okay. Yeah. So this long problem of flexibility, one people have tried to solve with different types of energy storage technologies, but you think interconnectors play an important role in solving part of that problem? Yes, of course, storage always has the element that it is a dedicated investment with a relatively high capex that you only can use for that purpose of storage. Yeah. Or in the case of mobility, of course, yeah, you have the mobility functionality of that battery as well. But where you basically say it are actually big investments for something that if you can actually consume at the moment of production, huh, we have a system which is keeping that balance means that if you can produce at the, if you can consume at the moment that you produce, you actually have many benefits. And what we see then is, of course, if you can have a geographical spread and therefore then bring the energy, whatever it's produced, to the place where at that moment of time somebody is having a demand. That is, of course, likely one of the most efficient ways to use flexibility in an electricity system. Okay, that, that's good to hear. I, transmission and distribution build like often is seen as like an old solution, but there has been innovation in interconnector development as well recently. So in, in October 2020, 50 Hertz and the Danish grid operator EnergyNet inaugurated the first hybrid offshore interconnector. So the, the Flacked combined grid solution. Could you tell us a bit more what this is and like what is a hybrid interconnector and how that fits into this kind of trajectory that we're on? Yes, together with our Danish colleagues, we're very proud about this project because it's a first in the world and it's working every day and it's creating actually welfare for those two societies every day. And what it does is the following. So it is a place where we have an interconnector between Denmark and Germany and on that route of that interconnect, we basically integrate Great three wind farms, two at the German side and one at the Danish side. And so we have a feed-in of renewable energy at the moment that we have wind. But at the moment that we have not the full infeed of wind, the remaining capacity actually is given to the market as an interconnector capacity. Why don't we see more of these? Because I, I think there's very few, but not, this might be the only project. So what's inhibiting more of these projects from showing up? Yes. Yeah, so today, I think in Europe, there are between seven and nine projects in concept phase. Three of them are actually within Ilia Group together then always with a partner. So you have several of them, but what makes them today quite complex is the fact that the regulatory framework is not adapted to that. So 
In the case of Kriegesflak, we could negotiate with the European Commission an exempt on regulation in the way so that we can manage that to the 70% rule discussion that you have on that one. We don't think that overall the 70% rule is the real complexity. The real complexity that you need to have for such a project to work is not only the technical complexity to be controlled, we have proven that we can do that, but also to make sure that every part of the business has a business case that is bankable and it is in line with risk profile of, of that specific industry. And that is different for wind farms compared to the, the transmission business. And so making sure that the money flows are well adjusted so that you don't have one of them making windfalls and the other one not having a business case that is working. And meanwhile, ensuring that this is well spread over the citizens of those two countries that are participating is quite a complex thing to get right. And so we're well advanced on, on three other, as I said, three other interconnectors, but it always comes from the fact that we find technical solutions, then we have the two governments negotiating with each other in the way how they want to get it organized because there's not yet a fully clarified framework that ensures that everybody gets the right benefits. And so you have to negotiate this one by one today. Understood. Yeah. So, so the regulatory complexity is the factor. So let's go up another notch of complexity and we can talk about energy islands. So, so tell me about Princess Elizabeth Island and what is an energy island and, and what are you trying to build here? Well, the Princess Elizabeth Island is again something which is a key piece of the energy transition. Yeah, it's it will be the first artificial island that is built for that purpose. Yeah, And so it is in this case fully focused on transmission activities and it does basically two things. The one thing that it does is is it brings on shore 3.5 gigawatt offshore wind that is in the Princess Elizabeth zone. So we bring that energy from those turbines to the island, transform it, and then bring it to shore. So that is the that is one activity. And there already we see that the island solution is a more cost-effective solution and a more reliable solution than a multi-platform solution. So that is one thing. Second thing that we do is the future interconnectors that we have in our portfolio, one, the second to the UK, the Nautilus interconnector, and then the Triton connector to Denmark, will land on the island before coming to shore in Belgium. And that creates then actually a dispatch point in the sea and of course, that gives many advantages. It gives an optionality. So it could be as well that we would have flows of Danish wind to the UK over those cables yeah, without actually coming into, into Belgium. And obviously as well, that ensures that we only have to build the onshore grid for peak demand. We don't have to build it for peak production because we only bring to shore the energy that we will consume. While before you had those solutions, a lot of the dispatching was actually happening on the onshore grid. And with the increase in renewable energy, we have have to reinforce those grids to handle actually that renewable energy. And as you know, building onshore grid is still a challenge in terms of NIMBY effect and everything that goes with that. So we, we're not going to avoid that because electrification as well is creating an increase in demand. So that one we still have to build. But the one that actually is coming there for flows coming over the country that actually going in and going out the other side reduce because a lot of them you put actually at sea. And before you bring them on land, you only bring on land to each country, what each country is using at that moment of that flow.
Amazing. What's the timeline for this type of project? When do you think you can get this on service? Well, we will have the physical part of the island. Huh? So the, the, the concrete, the, the, the sand and everything will be built by mid-26. And that is a consequence of the fact that this is a European project that is done in, in, in the light of the, the recovery out of COVID fund. Yeah? So that is why, 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 why it is within that timeline. And then we will build the electrical installation and we will connect the first wind farms as of probably end of 27, early 28. And then the interconnectors will land around, let's say, the, the change of the decade, beginning of next decade, the two interconnectors will be connected to the island as well. So when, when I take a step back and I think about these energy island projects, because there's the Danish energy islands as well, they really, like to me, this is the most ambitious version of interconnector development, of maybe grid development. Like when we, this idea of a super grid that's been talked about for a very long time. This to me is the very real world realization of that dream. And it transcends really what any one nation is trying to do. So what's the real intent here of building these islands as far as like meeting the 300 gigawatt goal for the EU? Is, does this play some role in like a, a kind of a larger grid system for Europe? Yes, indeed. So if you look at 300 gigawatt, if you would have to connect them in the traditional radial connection way, so wind farm by wind farm to the onshore grid, you come to probably an, an unmanageable complexity, unmanageable cost as well, because it's very costly to do them one by one. And it is very unreliable because actually you have all antennas everywhere. And so those antennas by itself are much more vulnerable than a network that you will have at sea. And so those hubs that will be connected to each other because if you already see the first two islands that will be connected is the, the the Danish island with the Belgian island through the Triton cable so that's the first time that we will connect islands we really think that we will see much more of that and you will have you will need much more of those islands at sea each time in a zone where you have quite some renewable production so offshore wind potential that you have around that island bundle that together on the island and then bring it over the different interconnectors that land on that island to the right place or being a pass-through situation where you have some cable that is passing through an island and that is, for instance, connecting Belgium with Norway over an island in the Netherlands and Denmark and, and going on in that, in that direction. So that is what you will see because that will be a robust solution, it will be a cheaper solution, and it will be a scalable solution for the kind of scale that we're talking about now. If you see today, we are huh, not even at 20 gigawatt. We need to scale it up to 300 gigawatt. Well, then you need scalable solutions, of course, that goes beyond the one by one that we've seen so far. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, I want to shift gears. We've talked about basically the largest form of flexibility that's kind of achieved through geographic diversity. Let's talk about the smallest form of flexibility where we can talk about local flexibility systems. And so Europe is looking for a 5% reduction in peak demand going into this winter. What type of demand side flexibility solutions do you see being a possible intervention there? What technologies do you think will actually be able to participate? Well, today, of course, if you talk about next winter, not that much maneuvering room that you have. And so what is there is what you see that is done by aggregators today in terms of demand response products. Most of those demand response products are actually in the relatively higher voltage levels of the grid and with the larger industrial uses. That's where you find it. We have already some of the aggregators that are more sophisticated start to have, let's say, smaller industrial capacity, but none of them is yet at the level that you say, like, we have this very small one scaled up to something which is meaningful for the total system. Yeah, we see many, let's say, proof of concept, so don't get me wrong, a lot of flexibility is used in, in of, this, of, of this small flexibility. What we don't see yet that they scaled up those projects to the level where we would like to see them. And so if we want to get to that, we are very much convinced within Ilia Group that we need to have a market reform, that you need to have as well an incentive for that and flexibility to participate and that you have to remove to the maximum extent all barriers to do so because that's what we've seen in the past why do we have aggregates because there were many barriers for the industrial players for the traditional balancing responsibility parties to actually make sure that that flexibility could participate they had incentives to invest more in generation they had other incentives at that point of time and so aggregates have created then a new play field of that flexibility and we have to create the same if we we go to the lower voltage levels that is for this micro flexibility and our view is that of course today first step would be that somebody is monetizing that flexibility through some of the let's say TSO ancillaries that is the way how it typically is done if you want to get money for flexibility sell it as as, as a reserve with TSO but we're very much convinced that if we really want to have it participate it needs to be in the basic energy market in the day ahead in the intraday market it has to play its role and so therefore you need to have price signals that you can actually bring to that level so that you have as a consumer a incentive to charge your car at the moment there is let's say a lot of renewables on the system you use your heat pump and your terminal inertia in a way that you actually are consuming at the moment that we have excess energy on the grid and that you don't use it at the moment that we are actually short of that and so that is something where we see a lot of is is possible and on top of that a market reform will enable that kind of flexibility but a lot of that flexibility is not of the same nature as the typical ancillary we aggregate them to ancillaries but actually that is a kind of weird form of using that your use is actually an energy management use you basically say i will drive tomorrow so many miles of kilometers with my car which is in some certain amount of energy that i will need but actually i'm 20 hours linked to the grid and so do whatever you want to load that 
I need so much calories to keep my efficient house at a comfortable temperature. But actually, if you do that between 10 and 11 or between 3 and 4, it doesn't change a lot given the inertia of your house. And therefore, you have a lot of, let's say, flexibility. And that becomes an energy management discussion more than this ancillary discussion. So if you want to have that full participation, we have to bring them into the normal energy markets and and, and not only as part of the of the ancillary market to make sure that we have that maximum participation. Okay, so if I, if I get that right, we have industry, we have buildings, we have the kind of the transport sector. These are potential sources of flexibility. In the short term, you see industry playing a bigger role. In the longer term, with market reform, some of these other forms of flexibility could come into the fold. Is it? Yes, uh, both will increase. But what you see, of course, the industrial one is already to some extent available and plays a role. If you see at the ones at the household level, also at the site of electrification, we're very early stage. Yeah, so we have seen a lot of solar PV, but there's no flexibility into that. So that is, uh, we call that prosumers, but in the end, they produce something, but they don't have yet flexibility. We only see recently now that you have EVs, heat pumps, stationary batteries uh, at houses that you see. That are actually the real sources of flexibility going forward. That, that are the big ones that you will see. And we are still in the ramp up of that heat pump penetration is, except for some Scandinavian countries, actually fairly low. EV penetration, same. So you still need to have the increase, uh, the so-called S-curves coming in. We see that almost as we speak happening in the EV sector. A lot of people actually in their, in, in their next car will buy an EV if the supply chain issues get solved. And so, so, so you will see a lot of flexibility coming into that part. And that's what we want to capture actually to make sure that it participates to the maximum extent to the, to, to, to the grid itself. Coming back to your question about if we can, can, can we capture 5% five, 5 of peak, I think that prices will unfortunately do already a lot of the work there. Yeah, so the current prices, and that's why you see, of course, that reaction of industries is bigger because they are directly exposed to the price peak of the wholesale market and households are less. So you need to afford them and you try to, let's say, based on vol vol uh, voluntary based uh, that they do this load shift. That might be a little bit more complicated, but the current, of course, prices that we see is already a factor of big demand reduction overall. Now we have to manage it that we do it to the maximum extent at the peak. Industrial, they will probably probably do it by themselves. Households, we probably have to give them a hand and do information campaigns to make sure that they use those moments less than they use other moments. In some sense, it's a lost opportunity because like the grid's being tested. And if these market reforms were in place, we could have solved these, like the technology is there to solve some of these problems, if not all of them, right? And it's just about having the structures in place. Like it, it, one, like Belgium and Germany have some of the lowest smart meter adoption. Do, do you feel that could possibly be an encumbrance with it? ramping up demand side flexibility or or are the adoptions of the associated like EVs already too low to, to not No, I think it could definitely play a role. I think that having digital meters, having EV adoption, having heat pumps into the system is of course key to make it happen. And I think that we all could say like now what we see in the in the geopolitical situation, if we would have had, yeah, is what many people would say. You see already today that people that have themselves invested at that moment of time, not in a business case, but out of interest in 
HPVs linked to a smart home system are actually the ones that don't feel that much from the crisis. I have many of my friends, those kind of nerdy tech guys, yeah, that have built their own this kind of system. And what you see actually is they are not that much hit because their invoice was already a relatively low invoice. A lot of it was actually translated into the production of their PVs, the battery use that they have. And you see actually that they manage by auto consumption today the crisis much better than the other individuals can do. And that actually are dependent more from, let's say, across the board measures that are taken by the government. Because of course, we don't expect that everybody is going to wire as a nerdy engineer his house. We want to be sure that everybody can benefit from that system without having to do complicated investments and developing themselves complicated technology. And that's something that you can do by a market reform, because a market reform can provide opportunities to providers of those smart services and therefore deliver it to much more mass market than it is today. So for for mass market deployment that often requires standardization, what do you think is the, the current market needs right now? Does it need innovation or, or does it need kind of more interoperability and standardization to, to kind of get everyone on board? I think actually that what we need in the first place is to have an obligation that appliances can have that flexibility used. Today, we see still in car manufacturers that they basically say, we offer reading signals to outside parties, but we don't offer steering signals to outside parties. If you want to have real smart charging, and with real smart charging, I mean not the car manufacturing app where you say, wait until 10 o'clock, but something that really follows, for instance, your solar PV in a smart way, or something that follows actually price signals coming from outside, you need to have that steer signal that could be delivered to suppliers or to to whatever other forms of digital services could be yeah, could be other players into that market. And so that is something that we see missing. You see today that even heat pumps are not having the obligation that you have steering things. We see, of course, that many of them start to do that. Still unclear how they're going to play. But there, I think the, 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 the legislation can play a role where you say there is an obligation of open data, open steering signals. Do they need to be standard? What we see in most of the projects that we do is that current technology in terms of digital allows you actually to connect many different standards together without too many interoperability issues today. So you can perfectly say, I aggregate batteries of four different brands into one virtual plant kind of logic. That is something that is not the big problem. The question is, are the four types of batteries each compatible with giving steering signals to them? And there might be different steering signals from brand to brand. Hopefully one day they will standardize that. But if actually, if it's not the case, as soon as they give those steering signals, I see that we have good people in IT skills that actually can connect them all together as one virtual plant without any issue. What more do you think needs to be done on the industrial side to get to net zero? So what we see, and that's interesting, is that industry has changed a lot over the last five years. When we were talking to our clients or grid users, whatever you want to call them, a few years ago, you saw that a lot of them were in the mindset that the government needs to build some carbon capture system and I can do exactly business as usual and they have to pay all the costs. And so that's the way how it's going to work. I exaggerate a little bit, but you had this kind of sentiment that it was not happening to them. They would still lobby, they would still be in a 
mode where they would say it's not urgent. What we see today is all of them start to have real plans. And actually what we see even stronger, and that's interesting, is that those who were early that had already concluded, let's say three years ago, PPAs at that moment of time with a surplus cost of 30% or something like that. And they said, like, I do it for the climate and to for my ESG targets. They basically say, it's the cheapest part of my portfolio today. I'm the most robust ones in my industry, actually, in this current crisis. And so they start to see that there is really a potential of this electrification, of this investment into renewables through PPAs or through direct investments. That's also what we see for the Princess Elizabeth Zone. So, for instance, we see that consortia are forming today and those consortia are not the pure uh, wind farm developers. It are wind farm developers that are actually backed by large industrials that say, I want to have access to this renewable energy. And so that combination of far-fledged plans to completely change everything they can do towards electrification to do so and then get access to large-scale renewables is really something that we see now is at the starting point. And so helping them to make that happen by, for instance, in the in the two countries where we work, yeah, we have to have more north-south corridors to make sure, or capacity to make sure that we bring it from the north of Germany to the demand centers in the south. In Belgium, we have those event projects, so that is the missing link to bring it to industries, the, the amount of green energy, because of, because of course those go hand in hand. You electrify on the one side, but then you want to feed this process with green energy energy and therefore you need to make sure that you have the infrastructure in place and the wind farms in place that you can actually feed your industry with that and that would actually be a very interesting thing as well and i'm very much convinced that in the long run we have actually a very very strong case to do so yeah in a renewable world actually they have stable costs which are very acceptable if you look them in the current light and are very competitive even in the national case just because the fact that renewables are so cheap the problem that we have is how do you do we overcome this short period of stress because of course Many of those companies we talk with say, I'm fully with you. The only problem is my balance sheet uh, is a balance sheet that looks like, am I still uh, alive after this winter? That is the discussion that I have. And actually to go to the point that I need to, be, to, 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 I need to double up my investments into renewables, into electrification. So how do we help those companies to do the transition faster? Because they will become much more resilient and we will actually keep the employment in Europe and make sure as well that we have a, 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 a well-anchored industry into Europe. And so that, that's for me where you see that energy policy really starts to touch the industrial policies of the European countries. So it could, it could be a source of competitive advantage in a, in a global economy if, if, if Europe is able to get this right and find, convince industry that there's a clear path to get clean energy to their industrial sites as they scale up following some sort of recovery, right? Yes. If you look at, at your Bloomberg reports, then you say anything you do greenfield renewable is the winning technology each time over and over again. So it's logic that if you're the first in that transition, that probably 15 to 20 years down the road, you have probably the most competitive industry at that point of time because the rest is not going to become cheaper. There will be as well resistance from consumers that say like, how come that my car is not made from green steel? And so there is a lot of, let's say, logic into that, but we have to manage a very complicated transition. And of course, I, I, I can fully understand that politicians are more busy with next winter than what we need to do 15 years from now, but actually they need to do both in parallel if we want to make sure that Europe, including then UK and Norway, remains a resilient and competitive area on this planet. Maybe one thing to add is 
What we see as well as a trend, and it started with a couple of tech companies with their data centers that contacted us, is that they start to see that certificates of origin is probably something that will be seen at some moment of time more as greenwashing than as of real green. Yeah, You are actually using certificates of something that was produced in a different geography at a different moment, and you just justify for that that you're fully green. And so what we... What what we had as a question of some of those companies, can you help us to become really physically green? Physically green meaning we inject somewhere with our PPAs, with our own wind farms, with our solar PV, as much energy into the grid at the same moment as that we use it at our demand side. So we want to have a full transparency on a one-on-one -on -one matching by the 15 minutes, by the half hour that we inject exactly the same amount of energy as that we consume and that everything that we inject over time will be fully green. And so that we manage ourselves or portfolio as a fully flexible portfolio. Based on that, together with the the the, the people of EnergyNet and Ederling, yeah, we, we sat together and we said like, probably this will become a European industry question. Yeah, because people will be multi-side. So let's make sure that we help industry to get a track on that. We only provide at this point of time transparency. So but we help companies to understand in a matter, better map how many how much is my profile matching? Am I at 40% matching? Am I at 70% matching? And then you can start to talk about what are the measures I should take to move my 70% to 100% over the next five to 10 years. And so that's a very, let's say, interesting tool that we provide as transmission companies now to the industry to help them to create first the transparency and then to see how we can help them with flexibilities and with the management of their PPA so that they can actually move into a 100% green over a limited period of time. Okay, so let, let me kind of start to wrap this up a bit. And the, these two types of flexibilities, so you building big grid projects versus distributed flexibility solutions, often they get framed as if they're in tension with one another, that doing more of one means that you're going to do less of another and they're like competing alternatives. How do you, do you view this? Do you think one of them is going to win or are they complementary? No, no, they're very much complementary. And as I said, like the micro flexibilities you will use typically for the short cycle, the short optimization that you have, the day night, the intraday kind of optimization. As I said, your typical use is a certain amount of heat that needs to be delivered to your house, a certain level of additional miles that need to be charged on your battery. That's the kind of flexibility. And actually, I have a lot of flexibility to to change the timing of that during the day, because that is actually what, how, what you can do with that kind of flexibility. The one of interconnectors is a flexibility where you say, I'm managing the big kind of things that I see. I'm managing the combination of offshore wind blowing in a certain zone at full force and not at all at a different zone. So that's the kind of flexibility. So you, you basically are yielding your renewable energy somewhere in a large geographical area like Europe, including, in my opinion, still always Norway and UK, because I think it's 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 one common market that you need to manage. You yield somewhere that energy and you bring it to the different demand centers. That is actually what interconnectors will do. And meanwhile, of course, given the market mechanism that you have at the wholesale level, you do that in the most efficient way so that those ones who can produce at lowest cost, which typically are renewables already in the first place, yeah, they will they will always produce and then you complement them with, let's say, other sources that are a little bit more expensive in their operation. Looking forward to not this winter, but say the next one, right? If we wanted to ready ourselves for what might be a very similar situation in, in the following winter, what do you think regulators and grid operators 
should be working through 2023 on? The simple answer in terms of what you need to do, but not that necessarily simple in execution, is you need to make sure that you reduce drastically the use of gas. Yeah, so that is what you need to do. So how can you make sure that you reduce the amount of gas use? You can do that, of course, by using other means to produce electricity, by using other means also during summer right, to save as much as you can on the gas side, which is not easy to be done because, of course, in the merit order, etc., gas plants will probably still be playing a role. And so how do you manage that, that you avoid that that use is there? And so you use other sources. And unfortunately, this is really crisis management for a winter. So you will have the, the disadvantage of more coal, more, 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 lignite uh, that you will have into the system and next to that you have of course the nuclear plants that will turn and you will make sure that you use as well every renewal that you have to the maximum extent so you try to find ways to avoid curtailment so that you have that energy used and that it's not curtailed and replaced by some gas consumption meanwhile of course you have to see what are the places where i can reduce the future use of gas to the maximum extent is there industrial heat that I can relatively quickly still replace because the project were in place and they would do them maybe a little bit later, but they actually can execute and there is no problem to get them done? Can I incentivize those industrials to move from a gas-heated steam process to a electricity-heated steam process? That is that is another thing that you can do. And of course, what you need to do structurally, because this is, uh, this is more a, a marathon than a sprint, huh? there will other winters to come, is that now you make serious work about heat pump integration as a first priority, which is, uh, of course, uh, more difficult than the one on EVs. EVs, you can create incentives and, and it's uh, the other one is about refurbishment, about making houses more energy efficient. So you need really to go all out as of now, but it is, uh, let's say, as I said, it's a marathon for the next 15 years in getting houses efficient and getting heat pumps wherever you can use heat pumps or city heating that is based on an electricity system that you use as well then to balance the system. Because there you get the double benefit. You reduce your geopolitical dependence and you create, of course, steps forward in that energy transition, which is absolutely needed in the fight against climate change. Yeah, so a lot of the solutions we already know, and it's just, it's just about doing them quickly and doing them now as opposed to postponing. Yes, and there the thing is, of course, that we have to see why were they not happening before? Because actually when you see today, they're all in the money. Yeah, so actually, if you would invest today in solar PV, it's your payback period is, is very short with current prices. And so and so there's no reason that you would not do it if you would have a roof, put as much shoulder panels on it. That's why is it then not happening? Why are we not having to? We see, of course, the ramp up, but we don't see it yet at the scale we could see. Same for a heat pump you could actually could go all up. What, what is actually blocking is something that policymakers need to understand and really drive on those points. And so it should be almost like, on the one hand, let's make sure that there where we see that there is no reason that it's going to happen, that we see what is the last thing stopping them, let's make it happen over there. And then for the other one, we need to have things like we have done in emission norms. Yeah, we tell clearly like as of this date, it is impossible to do anything else than the carbon-free solutions that actually are making us less dependent from gas. That is what we're going to, to have as an objective so that you avoid, of course, you have a transition period, but you keep it short enough that we're not investing still today into gas-fired capacity to heat houses or to, to heat water. That actually needs to stop as fast as we can and needs to be replaced by anything else. And then you have this kind of refurbishment obligation that you bring in 
in five to ten years so that people are obliged that when they buy a house that they refurbish it immediately to a certain level of efficiency standard and a certain type of consumption and a minimum level of solar PV that needs to be on the roof. So thank you, Chris, for your time. I, I think there's there's very few companies that can have this full broad range of a conversation, right? Talking about the very extreme ends of flexibility and see it from both sides. So it's been a pleasure to chat with you today. It was a pleasure to be here. And as you can see, we are in a sector which is on the move. And so interesting talk, but also interesting place to work. So if anybody hearing this would like to join us, get in contact with us, I would say. Sounds good. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording and any liability of this recording is expressly disclaimed. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.